Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, Performance is Politics, Boris, Julius, and AOC. The date is September 2021, and my name is Bell Avis. The word, performance. Definition number one. The action or process of carrying out or accomplishing an action or a task. Definition number two, an act, an act, not an action, of staging or presenting some form of entertainment. David Boas, writing in 2016 for the Cato Institute, penned an article about former Russian President Boris Yeltsin. Quote, Russian hardliners had staged a coup against Mikhail Gorbachev on the morning of August 19th 1991, as the coup plotters issued a declaration of a new Soviet president and seized control of Russian media. Supporters of democracy gathered at the Russian parliament, and Boris Yeltsin, the new president of the Russian Soviet Socialist Federal Republic, decided to go out and speak to the soldiers and the people outside the parliament building. He climbed up onto a tank and rallied opposition to the coup. Two days later, the coup collapsed, and Yeltsin was a national hero. As I wrote, when Yeltsin died in 2007, more than any other man, Boris Yeltsin moved the Russian people from tyranny to a rough approximation of freedom. For that, he is one of the authentic heroes of the 20th century." Was this display necessary? Would Yeltsin have accomplished his goal without the theatrical performance atop that war machine? Well, we cannot know, but we do know that this act caught the world's attention in a way that a simple statement could not have done. During Gaius Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, he sent a stream of correspondence back to the Senate and people of Rome. His book, Commentarii de Bello, Gallico, or Commentaries on the Gallic War, often called The Conquest of Gaul, was essentially a propaganda piece. It was published as a whole in 53 BCE, justified Caesar's military and political actions during the nine-year campaign in Gaul, and, well, in a short jaunt into Britain. Caesar was the master of making one thing accomplished several goals, and this was no exception. He kept the government informed of his actions, he was able to tout his considerable successes, and he demonstrated his brilliance at writing as well as politics and generalship to the Roman people. In this regard, Julius Caesar did not just understand the value of performance within politics. And again, I'm talking about that performative as in on the stage performance, not the performance of competence. Though in Caesar's Gallic commentaries, he accomplished both ends. Not only was it the performance as in on the stage, we know who the central character of the Gallic commentaries was, but because he was a winning general, he was also a performer as in competence. One of the most interesting things about the Gallic commentaries was is that people reading them back in Rome would feel as, as if they were reading some sort of an epic novel or an epic poem of the time, only it was in real time with a real person, a person that many Romans had actually seen with their own eyes.
According to the 2nd century C author Plutarch in his Life of Alexander of Macedon, Bucephalus was given to Alexander's father, Philip II, Bucephalus being a horse. The horse proved to be too vicious and unmanageable and would not allow anyone to mount him. Alexander, about 12 or 13 years old at the time, undertook the challenge to tame the horse, much to the amusement of the older men around him, including his father. Alexander, however, had noticed that the horse was afraid of its shadow and gently turns its head toward the sun and then was able to mount him and detach the bridle and ride free. Philip II was so impressed, he declared that Alexander would secure for himself a large kingdom as Macedonia was too small for him. Since Alexander reigned in the 300s BC, nearly 500 years prior to Plutarch's account, we can safely say that this depiction was not in fact a first-person narrative. Assuming if the story were true, this is more politics as performance but I have always harbored some skepticism for the tale in and of itself. First off, would Philip really have said that about his son? I mean, sons at those points could be rivals for the father. So that one would be an interesting thing, but even more important than that, though the phalanx, an infantry unit in which 16-foot pikes or sarissas were packed together to form kind of like a giant porcupine kind of movement, was always the core of the Macedonian army, But the quick strike aspect was the companion cavalry, the elite unit of the military. It was in Alexander's time, but it also was in Philip's. So, we are to understand that Philip and the older men around him, who all probably spent as much time astride horses and riding in battle as they did on their own feet, were wholly unaware that a shadow might spook a horse? Though the auspices of Plutarch, performative politics became performative history. As the actor, Carlton Young, who is all but forgotten except for his immortal turn as the newspaper editor in the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, delivers this famous line, quote, when the legend and the facts are at odds, print the legend, unquote. In the Civil War, George B. McClellan was so successful in the performance or appearance of military competence, that the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac rejoiced when he retook command before the Battle of Antietam. They adored, quote, Little Mac, unquote, in a way that they never would for George Meade, despite the latter leading them to victory at the Battle of Gettysburg, or Ulysses S. Grant. The reason why most people know of Grant, well, it may be that he was a two-term president, and that he was buried in that eponymous tomb. Oh, he also won. Little Mac was severely beaten during the Seven Days campaign by Robert E. Lee, despite enjoying a nearly two-to-one advantage. Technically, McClellan did win it and teed him over Lee, but as Lee struggled back to Virginia, Little Mac did not follow up on that battle, despite having almost 20,000 fresh troops to deploy. In one way or another, all of these stories are a form of politics as performance. And in the case of Caesar and his Gallic commentaries, he was actually writing the scripts of his performance. But the nature of politics as a profession depends not so much on accomplishments or success, but on the appearance of accomplishments and success. 
Moreover, a political figure relies on a group of followers committed to them, often in a personal way. So, there is usually, but not always, a sense of the performance. But where in the performance is the substance? Few figures fuse these together, like Margaret Thatcher. Not surprisingly, given her conservative bona fides, Anna Leskowitz of the New York Times, well, sniffs, quote, between 1979 and 1990, Thatcher delivered speeches to the public in a patronizing, slow voice accompanied by a stern expression and under a thick, starchy halo of hair. She had a very distinctive walk and relished her reputation as the Iron Lady in public, favoring a uniform of skirt suits with shoulder pads and a rigid handbag that seemed to be an extension of her arm, Unquote. Boy, what did Thatcher do to Leskowitz? Thatcher was undoubtedly performing. That was all part of that persona dis- described. But she was also a figure of great substance. Upon her death in 2013, former Prime Minister David Cameron summed up the consensus from friend and foe alike that the Iron Lady was a great Briton. Quote, as our first woman Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher succeeded against all the odds, Cameron said. The real thing about Margaret Thatcher is that she didn't just lead our country, she saved our country. And I believe she'll go down as the greatest British peacetime prime minister in history. Unquote. And this brings us to the politics of the day. Arguably, the two most successful politicians of our time are Nancy Pelosi, the only person to be nominated as speaker by her party after losing the gavel. The other would be Mitch McConnell. By success, I do not mean influence over societal norms, nor certainly not the number of Instagram followers that each commands. Instead, it is about getting legislation of their choosing through the system. You know, the stuff they are actually elected to do. But these two are not the ones driving the cultural narrative, and their politics are very much that of the reactive. Pelosi is more a traditional California liberal, well, at least more than she would like to admit today. However, the voice and the driver of the center-left and far-left agenda is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez, or EOC as she is often named, aspires to intellectualism. However, her actual utterances are those of the insipid freshman undergrad who is midway through their first poli-sci course. She maintains an air of working-class roots, but her father owned his own business, and she attended Boston University, hardly the college of choice for the lunch bucket crowd. She revels in her Latina heritage, but when it came time to send money to her Puerto Rican abuela, she demurred, instead purchasing a Tesla, color white, of course, her best look. And though it is rarely mentioned for fear of seeming to be vapid or a charge of misogyny, if she looked more like Jabba the Hutt than a beautiful young woman, she would not have achieved the heights she now enjoys, especially with her host of shortcomings elucidated above. But it is not looks or minority status alone. Ocasio-Cortez has an instinctual sense of online and on-camera performance. When delivering a scripted speech, she lacks the patina of soaring rhetoric, the hallmark of Barack Obama. She does not make those audience connections that were the core of the Bill Clinton touch. And unlike Nancy Pelosi, she does not convey that sense of insinuation, like she's letting you in on some unknown conspiracy that the other side is doing some dastardly deed. 
None of those things come through when she does a public speech from a dais with a teleprompter. Rather, she comes across as bland. But when she is speaking into the now omnipresent iPhone or pontificating on a TikTok video, she becomes compelling in a way that those more seasoned politicians above cannot replicate. Also in a twist of fate, the majority leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, hails from the same state as AOC. A 2000 era Schumer was undoubtedly a man of the Democratic Party, favoring unions, uh, wanting environmental legislation, and greater social services, but always in very incremental fashion. Today's Schumer seems more like Bernie Sanders than the pragmatic Schumer of 20 years ago. Part of Schumer's support emanated from the financial nabobs of Manhattan, so that always reigned in his appetite for things such as too high of taxes. But fearing a run from the left flank conducted by AOC, Schumer is now in lockstep with his democratic socialist allies. Another reason to abhor primaries, in my opinion. The 70-year-old Schumer simply does not understand the new performative part of his role online, similar to that of the 31-year-old AOC. We now live in a country where people live their lives online, in the spotlight, and on stage at all minutes. But in this case, the stage isn't a real stage. This stage is bites and bits. Instead of a raised platform or a box theater, their stage is Facebook, Instagram, Snap, YouTube, and TikTok. Ocasio-Cortez understands this, embraces it, and lives life online. And this brings us to the Met Gala that occurred approximately two weeks ago. Peggy Noonan, writing in the Wall Street Journal, noted, quote, The Met Gala the other night showed the elite of a major industry losing the thread. Google the pictures. It was a freak show. There was no feeling of a responsibility to present to the world a sense of coherence or elegance. To show a thing so beautiful it left the people saw it aspiring to something they couldn't even name. All of this was presided over by a chic and cultivated woman who is cunning and practical. If freaky is in, she's going freaky deaky to the max. Follow the base, even if it's sick. Do not lead. Leading is impossible now. Unquote. And here is the difference between the performance and the politics. The legend spun around Alexander was in service to the warlike spirit of the ancient world. Caesar's Gallic commentaries were meant to continue support what turned out to be a nine-year campaign of conquest. Thatcher's persona was to emphasize policies that were meant, and in actuality, succeeded in lifting the United Kingdom out of its 1970s malaise caused by quasi-socialist policies. And Yeltsin's tank performance was meant to stop the hardliners from regaining power and reconstituting the Soviet Empire. This was the ultimate fusion of all of these performances, but wedded to real substance, to real things. But what exactly is AOC's performance supposed to invoke? Well, the first thought is the Green New Deal or restributive government. But the linkage to those goals in her lifestyle is tenuous. It is difficult to preach the need for redistributive government for the poor and then attend a $30,000 a person soiree clad in a dress representing 10% of per annual income for the common folk. She can write all of the tax the rich screeds on all the dresses as the world. 
She had had a giant red tax the rich written on her gown, which was white, of course. But doing it at an event where a table runs close to a million dollars seems just a tad disconnected. It was also not lost on social media that Joe Biden talked of a vaccine mandate and demanded mask wearing the same week that gala attendees all showed up maskless, yet the servants surrounding them were all sporting face coverings. There was no Cinderella at this ball. It is as if the stepsisters were the ones with the glass slippers. Thatcher was exposed to some extreme opposition, including more Tidman members of her own party. Yeltsin put his life at risk. Yet, as Noonan observes above, AOC and most politicians today are not in service to their base, but in fact fear their disfavor. Thus, the tax the rich emblem on the back. See, AOC is sticking it to the swells. Though, of course, she is actually one of them. Now, in fairness, there is a phenomenon on the right as well. I have watched several Fox News hosts twist themselves into pretzels to defend the unvaccinated, citing everything from herd immunity to, correctly, noting all of the illegal immigrants crossing the border unvaxxed. And both of these points are essentially meaningless to the value of the vaccines. If the vaccines combined with herd immunity create super immunity, then you still get the shot. If the illegals are unvaxxed, then that is another justification for a controlled, orderly immigration process. Now, we all know the Democrats secretly and sometimes openly do not desire a closed border or a controlled border. The reason? All of those illegals are viewed as future Democratic voters. So, citing them, those illegals who are coming through unvaxxed, is a weak defense for protecting the choice to go without getting the vaccines. The point of that should be we should close the border so the un, so more unvaccinated people do not come into the United States. And as an advocate of personal choice, I often note that the quote right to healthcare quote is incredibly problematic because if someone has the choice to eat Twinkies as their three meals of the day, why should I have to pay for their insulin? Half of healthcare are bad things happening to good people, things like cancer. But another half are people doing bad things to themselves, but expecting you and I to pay for their choices. You can defend unvaxxing as a personal choice, but you cannot then also complain about not getting treatments in the ED when there is almost no evidence that vaccines are harmful. And here is another hypocrisy. A lot of the right-wing pundits who are out there on the front lines defending the unvaxxed are vaxxed themselves. They believed enough in the vaccines to actually put it in their body, and yet they are not advocating this for their listeners. And again, the reason why they are not is is because they are afraid of their listeners. Once the audience is turning anti-vax, so that is where the cable news hosts and a lot of these right-wing pundits move. Maybe we should try something a little different. Rush Limbo has rightly been been uh, praised across the airwaves. But one of the things that was so interesting about Rush Limbo in the 1990s was is that he led, that he brought people to ideas, that in talking about free markets and personal choice, he was converting people, not preaching to the converted, converting people. That was leadership. 
That is, is the part I think that in all of the eulogies about Rush Limbaugh over the past couple of months has been missed. Yet there is a difference between a cable news host paid based on their audience size and catering to their whims and elected politicians. Even President Trump, darling of a particular block of the right, was booed. He was actually booed for advocating the vaccines that his own administration developed. And it will be interesting to see if in the future he maintains his pro-vaccine position. In the past 230 years, we have had two presidents who have made either a total or a partial living by performing. Donald Trump has enjoyed success and some failures as a real estate developer, football team owner, airline operator, marketer, the list goes on. But only in one thing was the the absolute number one of his profession. And that was when he hosted the number one TV show in the nation in the first season of The Apprentice. It was a performance, and yet that performance was himself. Yet of his policies, he really believed in only two of them, higher tariffs and immigration control, which is why I am not certain of Trump's future stance on vaccines. The other performer, in terms of being paid as such, was Ronald Reagan. And unlike Trump, this was Reagan's day job. Yet many believed that his delivery or his speeches were effective because he was a trained performer. And they missed the essential passion of the man. He certainly believed in his policies, and to an extent, he believed in himself. But what Ronald Reagan really believed in was the idea of the United States of America and all of the things that have emanated out from the creation of this incredible republic. Limited government, separation of powers, individual freedom. Reagan believed passionately in all of that. Ronald Reagan was an ideologue first, a shaper of policy second, moving all that legislation through third, and only fourth was he a performer. We are a republic, as I have said through many of my podcasts, meaning we elect our officials to lead on the issues. AOC abrogated her leadership on the redistribution policy in favor of performing for the cameras on the red carpet at the Met Gala. And in this regard, she's the worst of both worlds. By no means, even if she really believed in her policies, which I don't think they will, they, she does, they are wrong-headed policies that will lead us closer to Venezuela than to Nirvana. But I also believe that she does not really believe in them, or she would have chosen to forego the frivolity of that gala. But leading and legislating and doing the heavy lifting is work. Performing is fun. And let me be absolutely clear on this. By performing, I mean acting. I mean appearing to be competent, appearing to accomplish things, appearing to be effective, appearing to actually care about what the American people want differing from performance of that of substance, performance of things that will actually help the American people. The darling of the left does not understand this distinction, and here is hoping that the next leader of the right fully grasps this concept. This is Bell Avis. As always, thank you for listening to the Conservative Historian Podcast. 
check out all of our other podcasts on this Buzzsprout feed. You can find us on Apple. You can find us on Spotify and on iHeartRadio and several other directories. Thank you.